This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. This past pandemic year has changed so many of our lives, but children's lives have probably changed the most of all. Their routines of family life and social life, learning, were all upended. We've talked a lot about a lost school year for kids, but what about just a lost year? These problems weren't just felt by kids with the most acute mental health disorders, but we do know that for those children who are most at risk, supports weren't always in place before COVID. So what are the solutions? This past Tuesday night, the Connecticut Mirror, the Gannett Newspapers of New England, and the Solutions Journalism Network collaborated on an event called Coping with COVID, Mental Health Solutions for Kids. We talked about the challenges and the solutions for this big problem. And we started with a story from the Mirror's Adria Watson. She spent weeks following the story of families struggling to find mental health services for their children, and in some cases winding up waiting in the emergency room for days on end, unable to get appropriate care. Adria says it's a problem that's only been made worse by this long pandemic. There's this surge of kids who are coming into these um, hospitals um, at these emergency departments. It was told by you know the doctor that I spoke with that April is usually a time of the year that they're going to see a lot more kids come in because it's the end of the school year. There's a lot of pressure that the kids are facing um, that just kind of piled on from the school year. But a typical year, they wouldn't see kids, they wouldn't see 47 kids coming into their emergency department and their 48-bed emergency department. So it's, you know, the pandemic has obviously added on to, you know, any stressors that these kids have had. Explain a little bit, Adria, about what happens to some of these kids when they come in and they aren't able to be seen right away. Where do they go? What do they do? Where do they sit? Yeah. Um, so a few weeks ago, a parent reached out to us, and this is the parent who, you know, whose story, their their daughter's experience that we follow in the story. Um, and this parent reached out to us and said they really wanted to chat about what was going on in the emergency departments and his daughter's experience. And so for his daughter, when she did have to go to the emergency department at Connecticut Children's, um, he was explaining to me that his wife was really worried because there were kids in the hallways on stretchers waiting to be placed there. Um, she overheard other kids saying, oh, I've been waiting in the emergency department for five days, six days. And there was a kid who said they'd been there for 10 days and they were just really worried about, you know, how long it was going to be until their child could go to the psychiatric hospital that she needed to go to. But during that time, you know, there were repurposed exam rooms. Um, they were, you know, putting kids in exam rooms and holding them there. And he was just really explaining that, you know, these exam rooms are windowless and she's dealing with depression and anxiety. And it definitely was not a good environment for her. It exacerbated that. He also explained, you know, there are kids who continue to be in the hallways, kids who were in other exam rooms, and they did have time to socialize with one another, but it's still like, that's not, that's not an environment that the kids want to be in. And he was also explaining to me, and this is, the doctors also don't want that for these kids either. Um, so obviously, like as I'm explaining, it's not an ideal situation. I don't think anyone listening to this is saying like, that's ideal. And, you know, there's a quote in there for the, from, you know, one of the doctors who were saying like, we're doing the best that we can with what we like, with what they have. And, you know, they're expanding, they're, you know, expanding by adding the exam rooms and trying to create space for these kids, but it's definitely not a great situation for them. 
That's Adria Watson, education and community reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. She's got a big story out this week about a growing number of children in psychiatric need and the shortage of proper care facilities and services for them. You can read her story at ctmirror.org, and we'll hear more from her in just a bit. During our live Zoom event this past Tuesday, we welcomed a few guests to answer viewer questions. Randy Silverman joined us. She's executive director of the Youth Mental Health Project. It's a Connecticut-based charity that has branches in five states. Their goal is to change the conversation and raise awareness that kids can struggle with mental health. Also joining us is Michelle Doucette Cunningham. She's executive director of Connecticut After School Network. It's an organization that's devoted to developing the whole child. The network is also home to the Social Emotional Learning Alliance for Connecticut. We'll begin with Michelle addressing one of the biggest disconnects that the pandemic has caused. We're seemingly very concerned about what children have been missing educationally, but there's been less attention paid to the social and emotional costs. We really are picking up on the need to look at children as whole people. They're not only students. They are children. They are individuals. They have their own personalities, their own needs, and their own experiences. And we have to remember that for some children, school is the safest place they can be. It's their, their place where they become validated, where they have friends, where they are safe, where they're nurtured. And ha not having that for some children, that alone has been traumatic, let alone the all of us have had, you know, living through this year. So I think that by looking at children, not only as um, students, but as individuals, as people, and people within a family setting, a community setting, we really have to look at them in the different environments in which they live if we're going to craft solutions that can help support them. Yeah, and among those different environments, there's the, the very real fact that for some kids, school is a safe place and home is not. And for many other kids, that's reversed. Right. Where, you know, it's it's not a great thing to go to school. We've heard, uh, Michelle, from plenty of students and parents who've said this year of not having to go in and get bullied and not having to go in and deal with some of the social problems has actually been one of the best years of, of my son or, or, or daughter's life. That, I'm sorry to interrupt, Michelle. I was just thinking about how fascinating it is. We, we run support groups for parents and some kids who struggled with social anxiety or school refusal really have done better during COVID mm -hmm. without the external pressures of school. Um, and, and it's interesting to see the, those differences. And uh, Michelle, I'm sure you're going to say the same thing. I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> No, I think that's exactly right. We have to look at children in their setting and within their experience and recognize that they're all going to be different. That, you know, they're and extroverts. There are people who have been desperate to talk to other people and could do it all day long. And there are other people who would be happy to not talk to another soul all day long and be just as happy. So, you know, in that continuum, all of that is normal. And we have to make sure that we craft solutions and, you know, improve our systems to meet the individual needs of individual children. School counselors and social workers and psychologists are great. They are at the front line, but they are overworked. They've got hundreds of kids that they're trying to support at any given moment. So we need twice or three times the number of them in the schools. Some of the American Rescue Plan money is going to be available to help provide more community-based mental health centers. And some of the what's in the proposed education budget would really expand mental health services. But we have to look at broader societal solutions that are going to help build the system of support that kids need at all their different stages of development. Randy? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Michelle. I I, I think we're, we're constantly talking about crisis intervention, right? And mm. yes, there is a complete lack of uh, the lack of of hospital beds. Our mental health system, if there is even such a thing, um, has been lacking for a very long time. We don't have enough child psychologists or child psychiatrists to meet the demand, and we certainly don't have enough child um, children psychiatric facilities or hospital beds for children. And emergency rooms simply are not equipped to handle children with psychiatric problems. The truth is that Michelle's right. We have to look at the entire system and what she's talking about and what we believe strongly in is early intervention and prevention. Social emotional learning is one of the most important tools for early intervention. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it's teaching young children and, and they can start learning in preschool, you know, all about their feelings, their emotions, what how to name them, how to how to react. Um, and that all feelings and emotions are okay. And one of the things we strongly believe is 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 teaching those skills to the parents also. Children have always had mental health uh, issues and crises that they've had to deal with just like adults. We just really started paying attention to it only very recently. And I, I don't know, Michelle, this is a really important point. As far behind as we seem to be as as a society in thinking about mental health for adults being on par and in parity with physical health, we seem to be even further behind in considering that problem for children. I think that's that's entirely true that there we've only as a society moved away from the thought of children as property. Uh, in recent years, it's it, you know the, the move away from from punishment, from physical punishment in schools and in other places has happened in my lifetime, and honestly, not in every place in the entire country in every home. So we we know more over time. We also know more about how children develop, how the brain develops. Science has taught us so much in the last twenty years about how children's brains are affected by trauma, how resilient they can be, and how they can recover from the worst injuries, and we. We also have to start thinking about health as kind of a continuum of health and injury. You know, if we had uh, an injury, we would go to the hospital. There's no stig stigma. You go and you get your arm broken, you get your arm cast, it gets fixed. If you experience trauma, you need to see a health professional that can help you heal that mental injury, that emotional injury. And we need to take some of that stigma away from it. And by saying and putting it in a historical context, there are plenty of people who think, Oh, when I was a kid, we used to do this and I turned out okay. And that's probably true. But I can tell you there are lots of people who didn't turn out okay who experienced that. And we're learning more and more how to do better. We need to look at children's development and figure out how we can support them to be successful and happy and self-sufficient and contributing members of our society throughout their lives. Can I just add one little Please, thing, John? Yeah. Because as you were talking about the history, I think it's really important to recognize also that we live in a very hyper parenting society these days and certainly in the past 20 years where you know we were taught to believe that a child's behavior is directly related to parenting. 
that you had to teach your child how to behave. And if you could not teach your child how to behave, usually, mm. you know, corporal punishment of some kind, um, then there was something wrong with you as a parent. And so we really um, talk about stigma in terms of blame and shame, how we, we blame ourselves, we feel ashamed that we can't fix our kid. And so we kind of isolate and, and try to go it alone. And the teachers and the pediatricians say, well, have you tried a sticker chart? as though a sticker chart is what's going to help, right? Or consequences or punishment. And those old ideas of parenting when it comes to our children's mental health simply don't always work. And we have to move away from this idea that it has to be the parent's fault. Um, but and, and back towards, towards what Michelle was saying, understanding the whole child, the development of the child, and what we can and cannot do as parents to help them build resilience and to help them through traumas such as COVID, which, which will be a very big trauma for, for an entire generation. Um, an anonymous uh, poster asks, so where can children go now for help if therapists are overworked and not accepting new patients because of the increased need? I mean, what's what services are, are out there? I guess maybe, Michelle, quickly, I'll start with you, but what, what do you see? We definitely know that we need more services, and the um, expansion to telehealth has been somewhat helpful this year. Certainly, there are some children who benefit more and are more comfortable on that type of a platform, but we also know that some therapy works much better in person, and we have to be able to find those people. And one way to do that is to contact through the schools. The schools have professionals that help can help you make referrals to contact other government agencies. The social service director in the town sometimes can help. Contact community-based health centers. They can often build connections. So there's there are support services and ways to start those connections, but it's horribly frustrating when you try and try and, and cannot find the right support. We have um, another question here from another anonymous poster who asks, what about children with autism that don't respond well to social therapy, specifically in a clinical setting? This is important, Randy, because as we've said all along, mental health is a continuum, and this is one of the mental health issues that many children and their parents are facing. I think that we have to, again, getting back to this my mantra of knowledge is power, understand that treatments are different. Uh, there, there are many different types of treatments, first of all. Um, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. There's EMDR. I mean, there, there's a list of different types of, of therapies, and it seems like it's a growing list as we do more and more research and learn about the brain. Um, but also to think outside of the box a little bit, because what works for one person isn't going to necessarily work for someone else. Um, there's also a lot of controversy about medications. Um, and I think each family has to really discover what feels right for them in their own situation after, you know, trying the different things that they can try. And, and not to give up is, I think, the biggest thing. And sometimes the best resources you can find are from other parents. Adria, I want to get back to you because part of our focus here is, is of course, finding solutions for all of this. And some of the reporting that you've done is, is remarkable. You're spending months talking with parents, hearing some of these stories, but, but you certainly did hear from people about what's needed, what's needed more in the States to solve some of these problems. Adria, what, what are you hearing from people? What do you think is needed to, to help? Yeah, one, one thing that you know I can think of that immediately stood out to me and we just talked about you know 
um, kids with autism and kids with, you know, disabilities, that was something one of the doctors I spoke to spoke with um, mentioned that they'd like to see more specialty care facilities in the state. Um, something that the um, one of the doctors brought up is that they're seeing a lot more kids come in who have eating disorders. Um, and so that takes needing that takes, you know, bringing in a nutritionist, they have to have, you know, be on a specific diet. And if you have a kid who's in the emergency department with an eating disorder, you just don't have, you know, the staff or the resources in that department for them. And if the facility that's, you know, does exist in the state is essentially like backed up, then yeah, there's just a need there. Um, and so that was like one of the things that came up was just if we could get more specialty care facilities for kids who have eating disorders, kids who um, have autism and, you know, kids with um, other disabilities, that would be extremely helpful. And then there is also, you know, they mentioned that wanting to have this conversation and have, you know, screening start with pediatricians um, that came up during conversations. And they brought up that, you know, pediatricians are, you know, talking to kids about mental health, but if there were, if it was, you know, every pediatrician, when a kid goes into um, a checkup to, you know, just ask about their mental health, that would, that would also be kind of an early intervention, like we were talking about earlier. And that's something that, you know, the doctors think that would be helpful and like to see implemented. And that's not standard practice for a pediatrician necessarily to be asking those types of questions of a five, six or 12 year old. They, they don't have the training is, is what it comes down to. And, and Michelle's exactly right. Systematically, we need to bring in more training to teachers, to nurses, to pediatricians, um, to the police force, right? And to parents as well. Our entire adult community needs more training, needs more education and knowledge. Not just, uh, it's great that we're having these conversations and we're bringing about more awareness, but we really need to understand more specifically about what to look for, what are the signs, and what are the right questions to ask. So training is absolutely essential in all of those areas. And I think it even goes beyond training, because while training is important, we need to see that this is not an individual problem. It's not an individual family's problem. This is a societal problem and and societal solutions that we need to address. So, for example, I sit on my local school board. We did not have adequate number of mental health professionals in the community to support children's mental health needs. We were hearing it from the parents. Some parents came to the Board of Education and said, what can you do to help us? School staff came to the Board of Education and said, we need more help. There's more going on here that we can't provide. And kids aren't going to learn if they have these other mental health issues going on they need help dealing with and they can't get the help they need either for lack of insurance or lack of providers. So we were as a district able to find an organization that will come into the school at no cost to our school system, provide mental health services on site, taking insurance from those parents who have it and not billing for insurance if they don't have the access to get the kids the services that they need. But it took people standing up and voicing their needs to the people who could make the decisions. Right now, there's a whole bunch of American Rescue Plan money coming into the states from the federal government. The State Department of Education is asking for feedback. What should we do with this money? People could you know, answer those questions now, could get back to the State Department of Education and say, I know exactly what you could be doing with that money, and here's my ideas. 
Somebody writes, this is definitely an issue in schools. If a teacher notices a problem, they're not allowed to communicate to parents that they think that there are red flags for issues like ADHD or others. If they did, it could help treat issues earlier on. Is this changing at all? I, I don't know, Michelle, this is a this is a big issue. My wife's been an educator for years and years, and there's this very fine line that you walk as an educator about what you can and can't say to parents and how much you're allowed to, quote unquote, diagnose a, a problem. But- if indeed the schools are the places where kids spend so much of their time and they have all these particular resources, maybe at their disposal, how do we make this something that that actually might work a little bit better? Because obviously we don't want to put teachers in the position being untrained to have to recognize these things. And that's why I mentioned earlier about the need for more school counselors and more school psychologists and school social workers, because they're there to support the teaching staff as well, to, to take the, the a hint from a teacher and actually do an assessment and have some of that discussion and have the, the more ongoing discussions with the parents. But if they're seeing caseloads of 400 kids yeah. per counselor, how are they impossible? possible to have a conversation with a kid for long enough to be able to even diagnose them, let alone um, do what they need to do. So some of the funding, and I, I've seen that the state legislature here, that they're paying attention to those types of caseloads, but we really need to invest and put our money where we know we'll, we'll do the most good. And schools are one place where we know most children are, where most children go. They don't have to travel to get to services. If you can bring the services to the kids in the school, they have more instruction time because they're not driving to and from the therapist in the waiting room, whatnot. They're not, you know, as, as Adria described in her story, they're not sitting in the emergency room or a treatment room waiting for help. If we're able to address the help on a more timely basis, we might be able to, to start to make some headway against this. The problem with that, though, is that it does, it takes, it's going to take so long to build those resources. And while I 110% agree that is exactly what we need to do, the the caseworkers for the guidance counselors and the social workers and the school psychologists, there's not enough time in the day. And so a, what a lot of communities are starting to do, and, and they're starting to see some success, is as I get back to bringing parents and teachers together in, in ways that that they learn the same language so they can talk to each other. Uh, Chandra wrote in and said, what can be done to apply these responses of compassion and treatment to black children and children of color who traditionally have been labeled quote, bad, disrespectful, et cetera. Now white parents are experiencing some of this, she writes, which might help some, but what else can be done? So I'm so glad that Chanda asked this question, especially in this way, because we have to look again at systems that are affected by bias. And we training can help support some of that, but we also need to build and recruit a, a whole workforce in the behavioral health that have a wide variety of lived experiences because not every therapist is gonna connect with every child. Um, and we need to have as many different choices for families to access services and find the right connection that can help their family. So there's more to this than just finding, you know, the one person that can help your one child. There's really a bigger system that we're looking at. And our, the attention that's being paid to it right now is really essential because so many children have been harmed by, you know, labels of being bad or disrespectful and, and not being um, treated well by the systems that they rely on for support. 
you know, the mental health crisis looks different for kids of color because it absolutely does look different. I know from, you know, personal experiences, but also just, you know, hearing and seeing different stories that have been told nationally too about how different this last year has been for specifically black and Hispanic kids. How does it look different? If, if you can put a finer point on it. Well, on top of having to deal with the pandemic and the, all the issues that we've talked about during the pandemic, um, there's also been heightened conversations about, you know, violence and racial violence specifically. And I'm like, when you see, you know, last summer, all the people who gathered and protested the murder of George Floyd and um, kids are watching that kids are seeing this kids are, you know, kids watch the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, Kids are paying attention to what's on the news because they're on the internet. And when you have that on top of, you know, being in a pandemic and you're a black student trying to figure it out and just looking at that and how, through social media and having to deal with that um, this last year too, on top of, you know, this drastic change with school, that's going to be a different experience um, than, you know, their peers. So that's, that's something, and I know it was a different experience for me personally. So I, um, I'm very much interested in just seeing just how this has impacted those kids specifically. That's Adria Watson, education and community reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can read her story at ctmirror.org and look for more follow-up reporting on this important issue. You also heard from Michelle Doucette Cunningham, executive director of Connecticut After School Network, and Randy Silverman, executive director of the Youth Mental Health Project. Thanks to Katie Landeck and Aaron Dion at Gannett, Bruce Putterman, Kyle Constable, Courtney Gavitt, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, and Amanda Kenny at the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks to Susie Craig at Mental Health Connecticut and Lisa Tepper Bates at United Way for their guidance. And thanks once again to Solutions Journalism Network for their support of this project. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can get help by calling the state's 24-hour 211 service. Our steady beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.